Hi, welcome to another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. Steve's Speed Shop is brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They're in the business of pre-loved Harley-Davidson motorcycles. They've been at it for 35 years, and you can find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. And we're brought to you by Minisports. Anything and everything for the classic Mini since 1967. Now, there's a lot of talk of high-end machinery here on Speed Shop. We love Ferraris and Bentleys and Aston Martins, but motoring enthusiasts and motoring enthusiasm comes in all kinds of shapes and form. Although I've never met anyone quite like my guest this week. His daily driver is uh, a 1950s Austin Healey Sprite. <laughs> It's got no windows and no roof, or it didn't the last time I saw it. And his other car, a Wolseley, uh, was made by a company that went out of business in 1975. He's uh, he's so enthusiastic, and he's known as Junkyard Tom. So, Tom, how's Gaps? Oh, Gaps is bloody brilliant. Um, I mean, obviously, you've probably seen some of the pictures. That's the Sprite. And um, it's kind of the worst Sprite in the world, but at the same time, that's what makes it fantastic because I, I, I'm able to just drive it everywhere. I'm going to do so many miles at the moment. Tom, just before we move on to who or what or what Gaps is, um, can you explain the difference between a Spridget and a Sprite? Because I think people get very confused. Right. Well, I do. I do. The reason I say that is because I do. <laughs> so a Spridget is the kind of word that covers all kinds of sprites and midgets, because midgets and sprites are basically the same car. There's a few detailed differences underneath. But essentially, it's the same thing. One thing has evolved from the other, and under the skin, they are kind of 80% the same. So a Spridget is a sprite midget, but obviously because they're so similar, some of them actually end up being Spridgets in so much as they actually are half a midget, half a sprite, kind of put together into some kind of bastard creation of a car that you kind of go, well, that one actually is a Spridget, you know? Shall we credit um, MG with inventing the affordable sports car, or are we going to say Fiat did that? What, what do you think? I think you could say MG if you go right back to the pre-war... Uh, I mean, you know, there were other companies, but MG absolutely is the epitome because obviously, as you know, it stands for Morris Garages. And the classic British sports car is actually the car that is made out of the bits of a cheap car and then made into this kind of magical little creation that has got really nothing technically fancy about it at all. But because of the kind of ingenuity, the, the, the design of how it's put together, you kind of create alchemy and you have more than the sum of its parts, right back to those kind of early 1930s midgets, really cheap components, but this kind of fabulous, small, well-engineered, and amazingly entertaining little car. Arguments about old cars, and, and one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on is because, for me, you're the, you're the epitome of the, the man who sees a car as a car, rather than a toy or an objet d'art or something that needs to put 
to be put in a hermetically sealed cocoon and brought out once or twice a year. The, the last thing your cars are are an investment, and I say that in the nicest possible way. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point you've made there because I think people who don't treat them as cars, they are actually missing out even in that appreciation because, you know, I'll be honest, it comes from a sense of, you know, being fascinated by those machines. I mean, let's be honest, a second-hand Ford Fiesta would be safer, more economical, more comfortable, more convenient than any of these old cars. Well, you've been driving gaps through the winter yeah. without a roof or windows. But, I mean, life is not about comfort, is it? Life is, is about what you actually feel, what you experience. If you look at the lives of the great artists, you know, that film, uh, was it, you know, um, uh, painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling with, um, was it Kirk Douglas or someone? It was, know. I'll tell you it was. It was uh, Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston, that's and, right. And the classic line, and, and, and I've used it myself a couple of times, is when Rex Harrison, as the, the Pope comes into the Sistine Chapel and goes, Buonarotti, will, will you never finish? And Charlton Heston's there on his back, yeah. painting away and shouting at the Pope. And you just think, you just think, well, no, he's, he's, if you leave him to it, you've, and you're like that, you've got to be told this is a bizarre uh, yeah. analogy or, to draw, but um, you're one of those people who will never be finished. Chat with your boss and you have a performance review or whatever, and in your self-drive car or your easy-to-drive car that slaps you around the face when you go on the dotted lines and breaks for you when there's a tractor in front of you. You're just thinking about all of those things or the last person you had an argument with on Twitter and threatening. But when you're in a car and you know if you hit anything bigger than a hedgehog, you will die. You know, you don't need to keep the name of accident damage repair specialists in your wallet, because if you hit anything, you are dead. It it actually... (laughs) It's a real tonic, in a way. You enjoy that drive. And when you get home, there's nothing on... You know, when you are driving, you are driving. You are, you are every bend. You are, you know... I mean, you're a motorcyclist. You, you know, yeah. you know, that thing where you're literally looking at the colour of the tarmac to kind of assess just how slippery you think it's going to be. You miss out. If you start to only use cars or motorbikes on high days and holidays then you miss out on the adventure part. And I know that for some people, they might have to do that, and there'll be all kinds... Well, I'll tell you what, when they say they have to, in their heart of hearts, they know that they don't have to, but they choose to. Yeah. You know? No, it is a choice. I mean, it's a tough choice, because I will be honest with you, Steve, there's days when my wife curses me. (laughs) (laughs) There's days, you know, either I can't put all the kids in a car or I give her a ride in the car. I mean, one time... Literally, the gearbox just literally covered her in EP19. <laughs> and, you know, it has a very distinctive smell, doesn't it, gearbox oil? And that, that was kind of, you know, a good number of years ago. I, so you knew what you were getting into. I don't even think we were married then. So, um, yeah, it, sometimes it's a tough choice, and people will judge you for it and say you're not being responsible. But I, I think, without wanting to be selfish in your life, it is important to do what matters. You know, you can't kind of let the flame go out in a sense. I mean, if you think what we do, watch movies about, what we read about in books, people doing, and and even you know, you've got you know, you and McGregor and Charlie Borman, they they kind of you know did that, and it was a great adventure that they did on their bikes. 
But if you use it, if you set yourself that tight, you don't have to go around the world to have an adventure. There's, there's a British guy, I think he's from the West, he's from the West Country, yeah. uh, Devon, Cornwall, somewhere like that. And he's basically been around the world on a Honda Cub, the world's most ubiquitous internal combustion engine vehicle. And because he's on a Cub, he's not going nearly as fast. He seems to have a bit of a thing about BMW GSs as well. Every, every, yeah, time, yeah. every time he's somewhere in the world and somebody passes him on one of those, or it's on the back of a breakdown truck, or he something like that, he never loses the opportunity to have a go. But yeah, yeah. He seems to have a much more adventurous time because he's on a clapped-out old semi-automatic commuter bike. We all need to remember that we can all make every day an adventure and at any level, and it, it could be on something like a cub, or it could be... I mean, imagine if you say there's loads of people who think they can't afford a Bruff Superior, but they might drive a, a car, a, a modern-ish car, they drive a BMW or something that maybe costs £25,000, £30,000, and you go, do you know what? If you got rid of your car, you probably could get a totally knackered out old Bluff Superior with oil dripping out of it. And then every day you could be Lawrence of Arabia. And, you know, <laughs> and it would be an adventure. I mean, I see every day, I see a dozen new Range Rovers. And I look at those people and I go, you literally could be in an E-Type Jaguar today. Yeah, you realise the shortcomings yeah. of older cars when you try to use them day to day. So I'm using a car from the mid '80s. You're using a car from the '50s. Yeah. But it's. I mean, what you're saying there—that shortcoming thing. I mean, you're obviously interested in the. It's not just how it looks, is it? That Grace Jones advert. I mean, it is. It's almost like you're exploring the culture of the car. What it and it's that whole range. I mean, they were super futuristic and, and if you don't experience it if you just own it and you just look at it you kind of don't it doesn't get into your blood does it and and that thing you're saying with the ventilation and it probably is the weather because cars are built for their kind of climate the way all british cars the minute the sun comes out they overheat old ones don't they yeah <laughs> and I, I, they, they, yeah, because because in Birmingham where they made them, it was never bloody hot. It just wasn't on their mind. And I I, I bought this old. I, I I had a a spider. I know you've got one, haven't you? Half a spider. Yeah. And the day I bought it, I was stuck on Whitehall in London, just in one of those non-stop traffic jams, and you sit there for like half an hour, not moving. And it was a July day, and the sun was beating down, and I was just expecting it to to boil over, and it just didn't, because it's an Italian car. So, you know, it's designed not to. So cars, they kind of bring with them the kind of the weather conditions of where the people who design and build them live. Well, it's my son's. It's my son's birthday today. He's twenty three, and so we had a drink um, this week, and he was talking about some of his memories of the cars that we had because we always had, we never had anything too fancy. There was the occasional Porsche or Lotus when he when he was a lad, but um, I had to. I didn't have. I was living in the centre of town. I didn't really have a place to put them out of sight unless I wanted to travel to where they were. And I recently went out with a friend. Uh, to drive one of his cars, and it was, it was seven miles away from where he lived because that was the, that was the affordable storage that he oh. could he could find that was near in inverted commas to <laughs> to his house. And I thought, I said, does it not 
stop you from driving it? And he went, no, no, no. And I thought, oh, well, it would me. I kind of, I like that, you know, there was like, do you not remember there was, we're getting back to another commercial, but do you remember the commercial for the Citroen BX where it started? It's probably one of the best, if not the best car commercial that's ever been shown in the UK. And it started with this very suave and elaborately coiffured gentleman in his super designer apartment. And it said, this is Marcello Gandini the man who designed the Lamborghini Countach, the Lamborghini Diablo, and he's there, like, putting on his Gucci overcoat and picking up his fantastic calfskin, probably Gucci as well, briefcase. And he sort of comes out of the front door and it says he's one of the world's greatest car designers. And what does he drive to the office? Do you remember this one? What does he drive to the office? Yeah, I do remember it. Dum-dum-dum-dum-dum. He comes down the steps outside his fabulous um, sort of town centre palazzo. Citroen BX, and he gets in the Citroen BX GTI, obviously. Very underrated, that car. I thought of buying one of those when I got the, got the CX, but I got the CX instead because I like the styling. And I thought, yeah, that's what I want with my cars. I want to be. I know it's selfish and perhaps silly, but that's what I want. I want to come out the front door and it's sat there. I don't want to drive seven miles in a Volkswagen, and that's no offence, this was a very ordinary Volkswagen, to where the car that I want to drive is. I want the thing to be outside. And in Manchester, you can only get away with a certain kind of car, a certain genre of car. If you park a hot Audi or a, a Subaru, a, a Mitsubishi Lancer, something, something like that, outside your house, yeah. by the time you'd shut the door behind you, it would be gone. Yeah. But I found that by driving weird old stuff, um, the people that were thinking of putting it in a container and shipping it off to... Africa or Eastern Europe or Russia or wherever these things go. Um, they weren't too interested in my 1974 Lotus Elite. Or, no, <laughs> like, they were sort of driving past thing. It, it, it just it doesn't fit into there. No, no. You can, you can stop your car being stolen by just buying weird cars. That, yeah. That, that the Some thing... car that they don't know how to start, you know, because it's gone in 60 seconds. Well, I say that, I say that, Tom, but um, I had a, a 58 Ford pickup truck, uh, Hank, Hank the Tank, and um, it was built at a time when Grand Theft Auto was still very much in force in the United States, and there were plenty of parts of the US. In fact, I think it might have been federal law. Uh, it might have applied in all the states. If you were convicted of three auto-related crimes, life imprisonment. That's that's where that that fridge. James Brown famously was on his second. He'd he'd, he'd been busted twice for stealing cars, uh, just before he got his breakthrough. If he'd been busted again, that would have been it. It would have been off to, off to chokey for a very long stretch indeed. So this there were no locks. There were no locks on the doors, and there was no ignition key. There was just a button. <laughs> so, so I thought, right, how can I stop this from being stolen? So I replaced the steering wheel with the one that had been on my Mini Cooper and which I'd kept when I sold the Mini Cooper. And I used to hold it on with a big wing nut. So when I parked the car, I'd just undo the wing nut take the <laughs> and take the steering wheel. Yeah. And that got stolen. And the police called me and said, oh, um, and they, they knew it was my truck because it was very, very noticeable. I mean, there weren't too many 58 Ford stake bed trucks in two-tone blue and white. And gold wheels. So how did they take it? Um, two a pair of mole grips either side. Two pairs of mole grips. Oh bloody hell! So they <laughs> they, put, <laughs> they put them on this on the yeah, steering yeah. column, and they got to the end of the at the end of the road and realised that 
it was a bit tail happy with a Camaro Z28 V8 up front and no weight in the back and Bridgestone tyres, which I think were made out of uh, recycled wheelie bins. They never, ever got hot. I could, yeah. I could sit in the truck with my foot on the throttle, smoking those tyres, jump out and put my hand on the tyre, and it was still stone cold. I don't think they ever got hot in all the time that I owned them. So they got to the end of the road, floored the accelerator, and it had ended up in the ornamental gardens uh, by the clock tower. And yeah. so the police had had numerous phone calls from first thing in the morning saying, there's a 1950s American truck that looked like it's owned by the Clampets from the Beverly Hillbillies in the ornamental so gardens. So it did actually work. If it had a steering wheel, they might have been able to do a bit of negative lock and get away. Having mole grips for steering wheel probably didn't really help, did it? Have any of your old cars been stolen? They haven't, actually. No, nobody's wanted them, surprisingly. And funny enough, the Sprite actually has no locks. The same. Yeah. It has no external door handles well, at all. The Alpha... It, has, it physically doesn't have any locks on it. Uh, and, and that's uh, for a different reason. In America, it's because you go to prison forever. It's because this is from England in the 50s when, you know, you have the honesty boxes on the, the, the stalls, you know, that put your money in the jar and take your produce. I, th- I think it's a, just a different... You know, like the way our cars, they used to have the lock numbers, didn't they, printed on the lock barrels on the outside? Do you remember that? Yeah, my... You look through FS2309 and you could just go and get the keys cut anyway. My missus has got um, a 94 Lincoln town car. Wow. And um, it's got a keypad on the door. God. <laughs> I've got to say, I wouldn't like that. Why? I, I all, all kind of... I know it's bad if you get your car stolen, but all of the stuff that stops it getting stolen is also a massive headache, isn't it? Key fobs with batteries in them. That it just, it's like locking wheel nuts on your wheels. Oh, what a nightmare. Yeah, and, and you go, I'd sooner lose a set of wheels than have a car with a big aloe wheel with the nut down a hole, and the, I can't get the bloody nut off. What am I going to do? Cut the wheel in half with an angle grinder? Just that kind of stuff. I had an old BMW. It wasn't too old. It was, for me, quite new. It was a 21st century car. Wow. Post-2000. So that's very modern. I'm surprised, that, you, I'm surprised yeah. you're prepared to admit that, Tom. You're, you're ruining yeah. your reputation. But briefly, I didn't have it for long. And, and um, it was very fast. But it died when the immobiliser itself actually gave up the yeah. ghost. It wouldn't let me start it. And when it started, it was fine. And I basically scrapped it because the immobiliser wouldn't let me drive it anymore. Well, we had um, a chap in the studio a few weeks ago, Paul Scanlon, um, who is a big Larder fan. Mm. <laughs> his, his daily driver is a very, very nice BMW 7 Series, but he's got a passion for Larder. And he said something, he has a busy garage um, in North Manchester, you know, repairing cars, doing MOTs, all kinds of cars, from kind of the humblest sort of commuter, three-door runaround, right up to Exotica, Corvettes, Porsches, Aston Martins, all kinds of stuff. And he said something, he said, electronics are the new corrosion. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And and it's funny, you remember, you probably remember, you used to go to a scrapyard and... Or your assessment as to whether a car's worth keeping or having is how big are the holes in the floor. It's as simple as that. If you see some sporty-looking machine and you go, if it's got a floor that has got no holes in and the sills are in one piece, it's a definite keeper. Whereas today, all the cars in scrapyards, they literally don't have any holes in them at all. No. You actually have 
to kind of pinch yourself. You go in, and even the seam along the bottom edge of the sill is is kind of faultless. You go, how can that car be thrown away? You, you wouldn't even check the mechanicals or electrics on a 50s or 60s car when you look at it. It's, are there any holes I can put my hand through? You know, and if it's solid, you go, well, that's a, that's a saver, because all the others are rusty and you can pull all the bits you need off them. But, you say, yeah, as you say, the electronics, you can have a car that even when it starts, it will drive perfectly. But then after 30 minutes, the, the brain inside it will tell it there's some kind of issue with the transmission and it will go into first gear and yeah, in and out of the garage a hundred times and, you know, without a full rewire, basically, you can't get to the bottom of it. Well, people say to me, they say... Um Steve, um, in the pub, generally, this happens. I, I don't know why they think... I'm not a mechanic. I've never claimed to be uh, a technical whiz when it comes to cars. I can I can do basic checks, and I can yeah. I can do the Ed China stuff. I can replace brake pads, and I could probably replace, you know, a shock absorber or a fuel pipe or a brake pipe or something like that. I don't, I don't quite know. I, I met Ed a couple of times. Nice enough guy, but I don't know if people think he's some sort of mechanical wizard because he could re- replace brake pads and... And stuff like that. I mean, you've got people like Alan Milliard, who we had on the show. Do you know that guy? Do you know the name Alan Milliard? I don't know. Right, we had him on the show the other week. He will make an engine from scratch. He will cast his own crankcases, sand cast his own crankcases, and he will manufacture his own crankshaft in his garage at his shed at the bottom of the garden. Wow. Now, that's what I call... Yeah, yeah. That's, no, you've really got to understand yeah. metal, haven't you? Yes. He's like the, the fastest Indian guy. What's, what's his name? Bert Monroe. Yeah. And he would, you know, he'd know which, which bits of which engine manufacturer would have the different metals in, wouldn't he? He was like a chemist. Well, Al- Alan's... Alan's little Chevrolet, a little bit of Ford, melt it down and, you know, magic. Well, Alan's, he's, he's, he's a very special guy uh, in all kinds of ways. I mean, he, he, he has that V10 Viper engine motorcycle, which he's now ridden over 7,000 miles. And uh, he's got the Flying Milliard, which is the largest capacity V twin motorcycle ever and again he's, he's he's ridden it thousands of miles i mean they aren't his bikes are not show ponies but he insisted when he came on the show that he never makes drawings he just as he as he said himself he just sees the design in his head and then he gets to work cutting metal wow. <laughs> and they work they work he built a, a velocet v-twin because velocet had never made the v-twin it was a it was a single cylinder bike and he thought there's room for another cylinder there, and he, so he made this V twin. The first thing he did was set off on a 230 mile journey, and he got about 225 miles, and uh, and it broke down. <laughs> I love, and, and I see he gets it. He gets it that you make it, but it's only when you do the thousands of miles that you start to. But no, I like the sound of I like that Velocet because actually I need to get together with him because I've got a dream. This is a crazy dream, but it came to me one night. <laughs> I on. want to build a stag sprint. Go on. A stag sprint is based on the idea your stag is basically two dolomite engines grafted together to make your, your, your last of the British V8s from the old days, if you like, the British Leyland era. Yeah. And you've got your dolomite sprint, your, what's it, your 16 valve. Yes. And I'm thinking, right, well, that means a clever person who could make a mirror image dolomite sprint cylinder head casting could then take all the moving parts out of two dolomite sprint engines and you could make a 32 valve stag V8. It was a handsome car, the Triumph stag, yeah. wasn't it? But a 32 valve that was like one from the factory, but they never made it. That would be something to make. You need someone like him to make that head. 
because all the moving parts you could swap them round, but you'd actually have to make an actual back to front cylinder head, wouldn't you? Well, I'll mention it to yeah. him. <laughs> <laughs> Tell him I, no, I, as a car, I just think I, I, I don't even particularly want one, but I just think you could do that. That would be really something to do. And so it's just rattling around in my head as something I want to do. <laughs> it's um, I mean, bizarrely, that is another obsession I've got. Actually, is cars that never really existed. Well, I, don't start on that because I, I've got a, an idea for um, yeah. for a TV show. Uh, and it's again with somebody who's been on Speed Shop um, called The Never Was. Yeah. And it, it's cars that were never built because the company went broke or they were taken over in some sort of merger, as seems to be the fashion today. Uh, and always was, really. Car companies were always getting swallowed up, taken over or pushed out of business by bigger car companies and so a lot of cars that were designed were never actually built and so i've suggested to this chap that we make them we we, we there never was the cars that never were that would be a beautiful thing to do it, it would be yeah, a be- absolutely although we might we might find out why these cars never got made there might have been a, a good reason that's an education in itself <laughs> isn't it because funny enough that's like the thing when you drag a car out of a scrapyard that's been there for 30 years and it's all covered in undergrowth and trees and you you fix it up and you fix the holes and you get the lights going and you get the brakes going and you get the engine going and you finally get it all up and together and you drive it down the road and the back axle is going and you go that's why they threw it away in 1973 but you would never know that until you got the whole rest of it done so actually that moment when the penny drops it's actually quite funny so actually building those cars and seeing why they didn't happen but some of it is because they were just too futuristic, isn't it? Because with the Rover, they had, before the P6 came out, yeah. they had a kind of car that was a bit like a precursor of the SD1, didn't they? Well, the, it was the Citroen... like the Citroen DS competitor. Yeah, well, kind of... well, coming back to Citroen again, it, there's, a, yeah. there's a real, there's a real uh, whiff of garlic about this conversation um, in this post-Brexit era. But the, um, the design of... The Rover SD1 was based largely, was it not, on a rejected design for the replacement for the Citroen DS. No way, Very maybe similar. I'm getting confused there, but what I do know is that... And, they... and, hold on, the Rover SD1 borrowed massively from the Ferrari Daytona. Yeah, yeah. And if you can't see that, then, you know... But it was going to come out, the kind of the morphe before the P6. I like a P6. I do, but it was, and, that, and that's got some mad stuff on it. With the front suspension's insane, isn't it? I kind of love that. You take the wings off and you go, "Wow!" Do you know? know I've never the, the springs are kind of horizontal. Right. Well, let me tell you a P6 story. Uh, about nine months ago, I saw a car advertised on eBay. It was a Rover P6. It was white. It was in terrible condition. The very brief description said that it had been languishing at the back of a doctor's surgery in Manchester for 35 years. And the surgery had shut down and was going to be converted into flats, as so often happens in city centres, where it seems that every pub and every doctor's surgery and dentist surgery and, and anything is being converted into flats and people are being pushed out into the suburbs. Anyway, this rather P6... Um, looked very early. I, I managed to see a, a portion of the registration number in one of these very small pictures. What is it with people on eBay where they take a picture and it doesn't get bigger? You click on the thumbnail and that's as big as it is. 
What are they taking it with? A Nokia 310 or something like that? They got some sort of like 25-year-old cell phone that they're trying to take the photo. Anyway, the pictures wouldn't get any bigger. Now, I like a listing like that. The worst thing on eBay is when somebody puts 40 pictures, a link to a video, a massive description, they've got a phone number, you think there's no bargain to be had there, everybody's seen it, everybody's read the description, everybody's called that number, but this was a very poor description, very poor pictures, and the car was in Manchester. So I contacted the guy, went straight round, but in the meantime, I'd done my homework. It was the old court show car. This car was... The first V8 engine Rover P6. Very cool. By the time I got round to the guy's house, he'd worked it out as well. Because <laughs> he said to me, hey, you'll never guess what, as I'm looking at this car and thinking, this is way beyond any kind of restoration. The, 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 the inner wings weren't in poor condition. The inner wings had ceased to exist. There were no inner wings. Yeah, weren't there anymore. They just weren't there. The floor, again... There was no floor. Once there had been a floor, but now there was no floor. Weirdly, the red leather seats, it was white with red leather. Um, you, can, you can look. If you look on the Pathé newsreel from that year's Earl's Court, the British Motor Show Earl's Court, that car is revolving on a, on wow. a platform. And Alva Liddell or Eamon, Eamon Andrews, because Eamon Andrews used to do the voiceover for Pathé, is going, and here's the new sporty saloon car from Rover with a V8 engine. It's that car. Wow. When I, so I said to the guy, I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't make him, you know, I didn't show too much enthusiasm. The auction was ending that evening. So he was saying, so are you going to bid on it? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm, you know, I've got a few old cars and maybe this would be one too many. It needs a lot of work. I said, right, I'll get off. And he said, uh, can I get a picture with you before you go, Steve? Steve, he's like looking at me and I'm thinking, oh, here we go, okay. So we stood in front of the car and we took a picture. When I got home, he'd added to the listing and he'd put, look, here's a picture of me and Steve Berry from Top, <laughs> from top Gear. He's, he's interested in the car, so if you want to grab a bargain, you better be, you know, you better be sharp, exclamation mark. Oh, and, and I thought, at the same time as being fairly annoyed, I thought, I can't really blame him. You know, because he, he's trying to sell the car and he's trying to get the best price. Yeah, yeah. So I put a bid on it, and at the last in the last five minutes, it went absolutely nuts. And that car sold for a lot of money. But let me tell you something, Tom. If that car then subsequently appears at auction... Oh, or we all shows, know, we all know, we all know, don't we? <laughs> there's like, there was, I mean, it wasn't... It can't be that car. There would have to be another shell. They would have to have another shell... And uh, the unique construction of the P6 as well. I mean, it, you know, it would have just been impossible yeah. to restore. I mean, they're bad enough. I mean, the funny thing is... But it'll, it'll appear. It'll appear, won't it? And it'll be yeah. on the front cover of the classic car mags, and it'll say, first P6 V8 restored. I think, mm. I mean, in fairness, I guess if, if, if they do use the interior and the engine and the gearbox and the back axle and bits, I mean, you know, I mean, what we- it, it gets... It's, it's it's a murky area. We've it's talked true. we've talked about this before. I've yeah. talked about this with a few people. What's Tom's rule? What's your rule for how much of the original car has to be there? Because I've because <laughs> and you tell me <laughs> first, there, and there, then I'll there tell there you. Might be a, a, a public rule, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, um, uh, uh, the official rule. I guess my rule would be 
obviously within uh, you've got to have. I think. I mean, I think there's official formulas, aren't there? You know how much of the original drivetrain chassis if you're registering a car. But in my mind, for whether I would judge a car that has been restored, is whether that essential character of the thing. I mean, um, I mean, you know, Piper McGraw, don't you? Yeah. And he's building up that Sprite, and I don't know what engine it's got. It's, it's a pretty special thing. But the outside of it is still just as rusty and scuffed up as it always was, even though it's got the kind of aluminium, you know, bomber seats and the kind of, you know, fancy low... It's Mechanically, it's an absolute marvel, but the outside is still scruffy, worn through 1950s paint. And, and in a sense, I'd look at that and go... Just the visual test says that is still the same car. I was, I, I, I think I've told this story before, but my first car, I learned to drive in my father's BMW 2002 Ti, which was a fantastic car. China blue, it had the BBS alloy wheels with the gold centres and the polished rims, blue sort of vinyl and velour interior. What a fantastic car that was. Uh, I passed my driving test and my motorcycle test within 11 days of of being legally able to drive and ride on the road. Wow. And I got back having passed my driving test, and my dad said, I said, Dad, I passed. And he said, well done, don't think you're going to be driving around in the BMW. There's a car out the back, you can pay me back weekly. My dad's that kind of guy. So I went outside around the back of the house, and I was just looking at this Citroen Ami and thinking, I cannot be seen in that contraption. <laughs> it was, are you aware of the Ami? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It was, it was so like it the Anglia roof. Yeah, it was, it was a odd-looking... Two CV with a kind of Tupperware tub stuck on the top yeah, of it. Yeah, it was a two CV <laughs> in its Sunday best, yeah. basically. And this was the Ami 8, so it was the 800cc twin-cylinder engine. <laughs> And it was the brake, so it was the it was the estate or the yeah. station wagon version of the Ami, and it just looked so odd and so eccentric. And I was young, and I wanted something cool, and I wanted to impress. And my dad had got me this weird French thing that I grew to love. I grew to love that car. It was such a, it was so full of character. I mean, every journey, everything about it was odd, like where the you know where the handbrake yeah, the was coming out of the dashboard and the steering wheel and the instruments and everything. And it just made me think, and I'm convinced to this day, that the French look at things in a different way to everybody else, and they do that deliberately. If everybody else is doing something, the French go, "Okay, well, everybody else is doing that, so we're going to do something else. Mm -hmm. Even if the other thing makes perfect sense and is the most logical and sensible and practical way to do something, the French will go, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to do it the French way. And I admire them for it. I, I, you know, I think, yeah, great. I wish we we would still have that sort of, you know, spirit in this country. I don't know if we still have. But I grew to love that car. And, and he sold it from underneath me in the same way that he bought it. I, was, I came home in it one day and my dad said, oh, uh, give me the keys to that Citroen. And I went, <laughs> this is the sort of guy my dad is. Give me the keys to that Citroen. I sold it to Mr. Pearson. And this was a surgeon who had operated on all of us. He, he actually did my vasectomy, but maybe that's a bit more information than, yeah. than everyone needs. <laughs> he, he, did it a lo- he did it a long time in the future after he bought the Citroen because I had three kids in between. But um, he said, I've sold it to Mr Pearson. He's using it for, uh, for shooting. And what he was going to do, he was going to take it out onto wetlands where a, a 4 before or anything like that would just sink down to its bonnet. 
he was going to put his dogs and his guns and all that sort of stuff because he was, you know, saving lives during the week and then killing things at the weekend, which is, you know, whatever you think about that. Evens that's, it up, yes. That's what he, that's what he did. And... Um, this Citroen, with its incredibly skinny tyres and super lightweight and, and you know, talky little twin-cylinder engine, and the room in the back, was perfect for the job. And I never saw the vehicle again. My dad had bought um, a Mini 850 with Flintstone floors. I mean, just, you know, this, this absolute base model, the most base model Mini you could get with sliding windows, finished in some sort of dirt. It'll be worth 12 grand now, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he, he, again, I just kept the payments going to my dad until these cars were paid off, that he, he, did, he got in deals. My dad was always doing deals. We always had strange cars. At one point, in, a, in, a, in as many months, we went from a Hillman Hunter to a Lotus Elite and then a Chrysler Avenger Tiger with twin carburetors with a roll cage. I remember going to school, banging my head on the roll cage because it was a rally car, banging my head on the roll cage on going to um, play football for the for the school team or something like that. I was thinking, I hate this car. You know, and the thing is, what I mentioned because my dad was what it was like a lot of people of that era, I think, and I don't know whether this is the same today. I don't think it is because I think the bureaucracy is different and it, it it's more difficult. But my dad would be buying and selling cars and motorbikes all the time, as well as as well as doing his regular nine to five job, because yeah. he had a he had a big family, you know, and he he had mouths to feed, and you know he, he had to buy school uniforms and football boots and and God knows what. So he he had a side hustle, as the young people would say, and it was vehicles. And, and my did dad... any of them change colour? No, uh, sort of inexplicably, even though the old paintwork looked okay. Right, my dad what? My dad was a man to spray paint a car in the back street. Yeah, he put... well, you used to do it with vacuum cleaners, didn't you, Steve? Well, we had a tent. Yeah, we had a big tent that but we. You know, your vacuum cleaner would come with a fitment, didn't it? Well, that's in uh, Day of the Jackal, isn't it? Yeah, Where... yeah, yeah. Where Edward Fox, Edward Fox and the Alpha, yeah. sprays the Alpha in the garage oh. of the vacuum cleaner. And I think a lot of people have no idea that or why have ever had. That, that's probably, there's probably a, it's probably a really good way to age people to say, have you ever used a vacuum cleaner that also blew as well as sucked? <laughs> <laughs> and you can say, yeah. it, in the same way that when you meet men who are called Colin, Derek or Graham, they're always over 50. You, if anyone's ever used a vacuum cleaner, and I think we both have, that blows as well as sucks, then that that ages them as well. Because, you know, if I see, it's like the best example of that is the conversation, which didn't happen too long ago, with my son and my father, where we're in the kitchen at my dad's house. And my dad is telling my son about how in 1947 my grandfather used to take him to school on a horse-drawn sleigh. <laughs> and my, cool, but yeah, yeah, but no. my, my son's jaw is on the floor. Yeah. He's like he's thinking because that story's from like you know my grandfather was a farmer. The school was a yeah co- country but that school. That was probably house. unusual even then. That was the tail end well, of something. My dad used to ride a horse yeah. to school normally. Yeah. and leave it outside and like but, you I mean, said, I remember the rag and bone man with the horse. Well. I can't even remember where we were up to with this yeah. conversation. Oh, you were so, saying national characteristics, cars, your surgeon, or you... Oh, no, well, what I was... Are... Yeah, well, what I was going to say was I was, um, I was on my bike. I was on my Ducati, 
about two or three years ago, and I'd been um, up to up to North Yorkshire and was riding around on a Sunday like people do and stopping for a cup of tea. You know, anybody who goes out anywhere in the Western world, and I don't know, it's something that people do in developing countries, they probably do now. Uh, groups of men riding around for no real reason other than the joy of motorcycling on a, on a Sunday and standing around at outside tea shops and garages and that, drinking bottles of water or cups of tea or whatever. And I'd just been riding around, and I was coming back through, coming back towards Burnley, crossing the border from Yorkshire into Lancashire, and there's a tiny little village or town there called Fence, quite unusual name. I'm riding through this village, not going too quick, looking around me because I'm riding a motorcycle, and I glance to my right, and I see my car. I see my Citroen sat on a driveway. Wow. Now, that is nice. Dude, that it's is... like that's like thir- more than 30 years ago. Yeah. There it is. Because, of well, course, I mean, the I mean, thing... This is, a, this is a sad comment, but I've actually got a friend who um, the same thing happened on their wedding video. So there's a video of someone's wedding... <laughs> And there's the guys in the car, and they're like, hey, isn't that your old Volkswagen Beetle? And the whole film is actually following this Beetle and looking at the red numbering. That is, that's your old Volkswagen! And um, uh, it's a a beautiful bit of film. I'm not sure what some of the other uh, audience members thought of that film as they watched it, but there's a a good ten-minute segment that's really all about the Volkswagen. But, you know, it's the only time they ever saw it, and then it was gone. Mm. It's your old car. um, But that thing you were saying about the French character... And uh, some cars still have it. I mean, even I, I've recently got quite into, you know, the C2 Plurial. Do you remember that? Yeah. And what a clever little car. And, and I kind of, it took me a while to realise they all come to pieces like an old 2CV, don't they? And the roof comes off them. You wind the windows down, roll the hood back, and those hoop things on the side come off. And it's like almost becomes like a little pickup truck with the, the flap on the back. And you go, that is so clever. So I don't want one. But they are beautifully French. It is. Um, and even now, some of these little cars coming out of Japan are still very Japanese, like the new Jimny. Yeah. I, it's, I, it's a cracker, isn't it? Yeah. I'm it's so Japanese. I'm, I'm a big fan of when Japanese, the Japanese, not necessarily the cars that you would say are very Japanese, but the Japanese interpretation mm. or homage to European or American cars. Oh, you mean like the, the, the early um, Salikas? Early Salikas. Yeah, I the think... kind of Mustang knockoff thing. Do you know what? I'd, ra- I'd rather have one of yeah. those early Salika STs oh, yeah, than yeah, a Chevrolet that. Camaro. I'd ra- even I mean... the Datsun 100A with the kind of Mustang front end on it. I had, a, I had a 120Y yeah. F2, which was the 1200cc, oh. five-speed gearbox, revy little engine, black vinyl interior, bucket seats, radio cassette, vinyl roof, fancy hubcaps. You, you know, it oh, didn't... No, Japanese 70s... No, you're getting me going. And, and I mean, talking about homage, the, um, the Datsun 280C Cedric, you know the one I mean? Yep. Like a big American police car. There's a guy near me, and he's got a Toyota Century. Oh, oh. I, I've never seen one before. But, but then, but the, 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 but the very Japanesey cars too that they still make. You know, they are. So, I mean, like, like even your Figaro. I mean, your Figaro. I mean, it's so Jap. They could sell it in Muji. Do you know what I mean? It's like it actually upsets me when I see people paint them pink. <laughs> you know, because you go, don't you get it? They come in four colours. 
Tom, they only, they only made that car for one year, yeah. you know. But, you know, and you go, why are they those colours? It's what's it, spring, summer, autumn and winter. And you go, you couldn't get a more Japanese concept of a car and you just painted it pink because you thought it made it look cute. I mean, like, the, the gods are coming out. It's just, it's just a beautiful concept. And, yeah, and those new Suzuki Jeeps and the whole key car thing and, you know, you could fit it in a... I just, just they're, they're just fabulous, absolutely fabulous. And you, you, what's it, the, the the 360 coupe thing, the the the, the Honda, isn't it? The Honda coupe, the old 70s one. Well, let's let's come back to Great Britain, yeah, and and talk about how you and I actually met, which was because I saw the stuff you put up on YouTube about your yeah, week. Weekend restoration of a Reliant Civitor, and just thought that he's got the right attitude. That guy, it's like it was. It was one of the most you've you've used the word inspirational films I've ever seen because you set to work on this Civitor with virtually no resources, virtually no money, in the middle of winter outside. <laughs> <laughs> tried to effectively restore this broken-down British shooting break. Um, and, and you did it. Yeah. Why? Well, I, I mean... And you filmed it. Yeah. I, I don't know how or why we filmed it, if I'm honest, because we had enough on our plate <laughs> to get it done. But something in me, I thought, I think we should film doing this, because it's, it's about where there's a will, there's a way. It was... Um, uh, it, it's, if you've got a reason, you will do it. And I wanted that car. I, I needed a car to drive. I mean, as we, were, as we were saying, and the actual budget I had would have got me something fairly crappy. And I saw this scimitar, and I think, that's fabulous. You know, Ogle design, V6 engine, proper GT, black interior with a black headlining. And, and you think, well, yeah, but it's broken. It's been lying outside a garage for 30 years. But then you think, well, you know, it's all just bits and pieces. If you just approach it with a, the right attitude, you can get it done. And, um, and we did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm bloody glad I filmed it, actually, because there's, there's, if I didn't watch that film myself sometimes... You wouldn't I, believe you'd done it. I wouldn't believe it, because I'm sitting there thinking, it really was. It was like minus two degrees, and we're painting the car, <laughs> and the paint is not going off. It's literally like jelly in the spray gun. And it really was New Year's Eve. So that And night, it was New Year's Eve... I arrived home, and my wife had some friends round who were supposed to be our friends, you know, family friends, but they've been visiting. I got home in this steaming, oil-dripping scimitar, and it did, I mean, we succeeded, but it did, it did break down. It exploded on the way home. The radiator gave up, but I did the rest of the way on the back of a, a car transporter. But that, that, they wouldn't have picked me up if it was just a wreck. It was out on the road as a, a running car. Yeah. And I arrived home on this trailer at kind of 20 to midnight Ooh. of New Year's Eve. And they'd all been sitting there. And my wife's giving me like looks like daggers. And I'm going, look at me, car. <laughs> <laughs> and I look at that and I think, did I really do that? Yeah, it's on film, you know. That, 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 that's, that's, yeah. So you, you watched that and, and, and that's... <laughs> It made me laugh that you watched it, and you didn't just think, what, what an idiot. Well, I did a bit, but then yeah. I, I, I think I recognise a similar, yeah. a fellow traveller, if you will. <laughs> I thought, there's there's another idiot who yeah. thinks that you can 
get an old car that's been sitting around for 30 years and you can put it back on the road in a weekend and paint it, yeah. not just restore it mechanically, but also respray it. And it, and it well, lo- you've got to make it, you've got to do it with style, haven't you? If you want to be cruising in your GT, you don't want it to be looking rusty. So, you know. right, okay, and, and that moves me on to the to the next bit, which is most people will be able to understand why you'd want to own a sports car. The Sprite and the Reliant are both sporting cars, but what about the Wolseley? What attracts you to a to a a car like that? Because let's face it, it's no oil painting, is it? Wow, the Wolseley, it's, that's an amazing thing, actually, and what I've learned about other people's reactions to it since I've had it. That Wolseley is the car from British cinema, post-war British cinema. That is, I think, that car, because they didn't make many, they only made 10,000 of them. Well, tell people what it is first. It's a Wolseley 690, 1958, uh, so it's got a 2.6 straight six engine so it's a big car it was like the top of the Wolsey range it, it was like the flagship model that they wouldn't sell many of and yeah they only made i think eleven thousand. who it's, it's funny because a lot of people won't have heard of Wolsey, no. and a lot of people who who know jaguar and know um austin healy and know lotus and know some of the low volume british manufacturers still won't have heard of Wolsey. Funny that Wolseley was one of the first. You know, they were making cars in, like, the 1890s. So Wolseley, you know, was one of the pioneering companies, but it became sort of merged into Morris in the late 30s, I think. I think if you, if you wanted to explain to somebody uh, what Wolseley was, you'd say it was the motoring equivalent of Marks and Spencer. Yes, that's it, true. It, yeah. was a, it was a middle market probably the top end of the middle market. Um, it was... Ultra- it was Captain Mannering. That's what it was. Yeah, ultra-conservative. It, it was a bank manager's bank car. Bank manager's car, or exactly. A, yeah. a slightly posher... By the 50s, they were posher versions of Morris's, basically, with a big grill and a walnut interior. But what makes the big saloons different, they had these kind of conservative, staid customers, but they also sold cars to the police. They did. And all through the 19, well, all for the 30s through to the 60s, the police in Britain only bought Wolseley's. If you see an old black and white British yeah. movie, um, I think there's a great movie called Hell is a City. Do, you know, do you know that movie? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, because driving a 690 all the way through that. That's um, Stanley yeah, Baker. Um, yeah, so many. This, was it Stanley Baker? Isn't yeah, it? It, up on well, the roof with his gun. Well, and, and I mean, hold on, hold Tom, city. Tom, stop. Hold on a second. Oh. The, the fight on top of the building yeah. in Hell is a City. I'm looking at the building through the window here oh, in the studio in Manchester. I can see through the window and I can see the Refuge Assurance building on Oxford Road in Manchester. Yeah. And that's where the... Because the, it, Hell is a City, it's a great film if you haven't seen it. I think the whole thing's on YouTube. Is, and yeah. it, was a, it was a British attempt to make a gritty American-style film noir. Mm. And Stanley Baker, who obviously is best known for Zulu, um, plays this sort of hard-bitten Manchester cop, and it's a fantastic film. The, the, the premiere was here in Manchester at the uh, what is now the, uh, the Apollo, the Manchester Apollo, mm. the big music venue here in Manchester. But the Wolseley 690 was the car that you'd see in all... It was a police car. 
But, I mean, it, and it's interesting, you said that film, that grittiness, I mean, you know there's scenes in it where they have a fight, and in so many films, how many films where someone gets a, a, a punch on the nose or a clout on the head and then they get up again? But in that film, when the, the, the girl in the bank gets a knock on the head, she's dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it is proper gritty stuff. Um, and, and, but the chases in those... Uh, so, yeah, the Worsley had this kind of dual personality. It, if it wasn't being driven by Captain Mannering, it would be in some chase with the back end squealing out. And, I mean, the other one, it's a kind of a comedy, The Wrong Arm of the Law, where it's chasing Peter Sellers' DB4 GT. Right. And um, apps, the, the DB4 does a, a proper four-wheels-off-the-ground jump in that chase, and the walls is struggling to keep up, but it's kind of sideways on all the bends. It's, it is a kind of American-style kind of rear-wheel-drive chase car. And, and it, it is It's the, sort of... It's the British Buick, really, yeah. isn't it? A Walsley. Yeah. But here's the thing. We've talked a lot on this show about the glamour and the sexiness and the style of those British cars from the swinging 60s, whether it's a Mini Cooper or an E-Type Jag or an Austin Healey or a, a Sunbeam Alpine. Those cars epitomise that era. For me, the Wolseley epitomises what came before, which was horrible, grey, boring, white-bred Britain. You know, the Britain where the ration was still in effect for petrol and all that sort of stuff. So why, why, would, you want to, why would you want a car that hails from that unsung age complete with its sort of you know it, it, its conservative styling and its I, I assume it's a body on chassis yeah yeah, yeah of course it is uh, it would be so it can't be much fun to drive really well i mean we'll get on to how it drives i mean that unsung and you're right it is that kind of slightly bleak early post-war kind of you know slightly sinister time where and the, the films from that time are fascinating because all the characters are damaged. They're all suffering basically from what we would now call PTSD. Well, like and, you're saying, and getting the... involved in yeah. crime to make it, you know, it was a kind of broken, bleak time. Well, it, because of the war. Yeah. I mean, Hell is a City is the perfect example because. A lot of the the stuff that goes on in that film goes on on bomb sites. Yeah. Manchester all the gambling, the street gambling in the quarries, and all that stuff—it's just amazing. I mean, the Tiger Bay, even you some of that, the street gambling happening. But I find that period actually gives us the best cinema because even though the time was grim, all of those films are actually a kind of forgotten era of, yeah, well, as you called it, British noir, whereas by the 60s, I mean, nothing wrong with carry-on films, but it was all kind of a bit jolly and a bit silly and a bit of innuendo. Do you know what, Tom? The films of that era, the, pre, the pre-Beatles, let's call yeah. it that, the pre-Beatles era, they're a lot more watchable now than those groovy yeah. 60s. You know, if you, watch, um, if you watch Making Time or Here We Go Around the Mulberry Bush or any of those swinging 60s movies, yeah, they're, they're, they're unwatchable. They're and, and by the way, as well, yeah. the Beatles films are unwatchable. And if, yeah. any, if anybody thinks that's sacrilege, actually sit down and watch one from yeah. start to finish. For Saturday night, Sunday morning. I mean, you, I mean that is Brilliant. just perfection. Yeah. So in a way, what we're saying is grittiness actually does give you better art. And in those films, the police cars, like the American films, like when you watch The Postman Always Rings Twice, I do like to see a big car in a car chase. It's like watching Kojak. I mean, his cars are not sports cars. <laughs> but to 
could see a massive rear-wheel drive heavy car giving it the beans around the bend and leaning at 45 degrees and the tyres screeching. I'll be honest, I think that is it's just as exciting as a sports car. That's it for another episode of Steve's Speed Shop. Don't forget, tell your friends about the podcast. If they haven't heard of a podcast, just send them to Fab's uh, website, Fab Radio International, and click on my face, as uh, Partridge might say. See you back here next week.